Good morning, everyone. This morning's um, Bible reading is from Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 to 34. Um, please follow along in your Bibles or your devices or on the screen behind me. Matthew chapter 8, verse 18. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Then he got into a boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. He replied, You of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. When he arrived at the other side of the sorry, when he arrived at the other side in the region of Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town and reported all of this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. Well, we'll consider that passage in a moment, and I'll pray for us to that end. But before I do, let me just reiterate um, the announcement that Sarah made about uh, the church plant. Uh, I'd love to see you there uh, in a couple of Saturdays' time, if that suits. And then the, the following one, if a Saturday's not good for you, we chose Sunday afternoon so that one or the other may be helpful uh, for you if you're interested to come along. Uh, but let me pray for us as we look at this um, section of God's Word together. Um, our Heavenly Father, we do acknowledge that your word is given to transform us, uh, not simply for information, but to hear your voice clearly and to respond in obedience. So we ask this morning that you might uh, prevent us from simply hearing and not doing. Uh, help us to respond to the challenge that we see Jesus places upon his disciples here, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, have you ever been in a boat on a storm? 
a few years ago, I remember crossing Bass Strait with my uh, family on the Spirit of Tasmania cruise ship. Uh, we had driven to Melbourne and then we put our van on the boat and we were going to be traveling overnight across to Devonport, uh, ready to drive around Tassie. Uh, but as you'll know, if you've seen a bad weather year in the Sydney to Hobart yacht race, uh, the Bass Strait can, of course, be renowned for huge storms and waves. And by the time I was getting into my bunk to try and sleep that night, uh, the whole thing was moving around everywhere and you had to be so careful you didn't knock yourself out on the steel bed. Um, and it was a fairly sleepless night. It was difficult. We woke up in the, in the morning and the storm had largely passed, uh, but the huge waves, the huge swell remained. And I can distinctly remember even now um, walking down to the breakfast area, which unsurprisingly was fairly empty. Um, those that were coming away from it seemed to be carrying brown paper bags and looking green-faced. It wasn't much of an enticement to eat anything. And as I chased my cereal bowl around the moving table, I realized why it was so difficult. But imagine the reaction of everyone on that ship if somebody had simply walked outside and just said, be still, and the water was instantly, instantly calm. All those seasick people just longing to get off this boat. If somebody could just do that, wouldn't we have been in awe? Wouldn't we have said, who is this? How can they do that? But of course, that is the scenario as Jesus calms the storm. But those involved weren't in some cruise ship. They were in a first century sailing boat. And it wasn't a matter of feeling seasick or not being able to have breakfast. It was a case of life and death. Here is Rembrandt's depiction of this. As we try and picture the scene of what it would have been like on the Sea of Galilee for those first disciples. Notice in verses 23 to 27, as this story is told, how Jesus shows his authority over nature. It's described as a furious storm. It comes up, it threatens to swamp the vessel, verse 24. Now, sudden storms on the Sea of Galilee are not unknown. Uh, they're fairly common uh, still today. But we know that some of the fishermen that are part of his group uh, seasoned people. They spent all their life on the Sea of Galilee. It was obviously a huge storm. People like this don't scare easily. And somehow Jesus is sleeping in the midst of all this commotion. Obviously he's exhausted, but his disciples wake him up in verse 25 and they say, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. Jesus gets up and firstly rebukes them for their lack of faith. You of little faith, why are you so afraid? Verse 26 because fear, it seems, has driven out faith. But then he secondly rebukes the wind and the waves, and they respond to his word. They're completely calm. And we're told in verse 27 that the disciples are in shock. They're amazed. They ask, what kind of man is this? And this question about Jesus' identity shows the disciples still have a deficiency in their understanding. There's a deficiency in their faith. If they truly understood at this point that Jesus was the heaven-sent Messiah, would they really think that a storm could take his life or theirs? Somehow they've not fully recognized his authority. And at the end of the boat ride, uh, they come to the region of the Gadarenes, a Gentile area, and here suddenly Jesus demonstrates his authority over the demonic. As they go out to demon-possessed men, come down to meet them, and we're told in verse 28 that they're so violent that no one could pass that way. 
It seems like these two guys have terrorised the whole community because of their demonic violence. In verse 29, they recognise who Jesus is and they ask if he has come to torture them or literally terrorise them before the appointed time. And they beg him, if so, to send them into a herd of pigs and Jesus agrees to their request. He orders them to go. They go into the herd. The whole herd rushes down into the sea and they're drowned. And we see the sudden destructive power of the kingdom of darkness in a very stark way here. But it also illustrates that Jesus puts people and spiritual realities above other considerations. More importantly, the point of the story is that Jesus has matchless authority over all the powers of darkness and evil spirits. He simply speaks again and they are driven out with a word. Now, Jesus is seen to have authority throughout this chapter, chapter 8 of Matthew. We saw last week he has authority over disease, over leprosy, over paralysis, and now authority over nature, authority over the spiritual realm. And yet the calming of the storm causes his own disciples in verse 27 to say, what kind of man is this? Now, sometimes it's clear that a person lacks authority, right? At our Year 12 uh, muck-up day, some of us decided we'd go into school early that day and set up a barrier to the teacher's car park, a kind of boom gate, if you will. Uh, we thought it would be fun to create a toll because tolls were in in Sydney at the time. You know, they were very popular on our roads. And we thought, gold coin donation to enter the school, it's only fair. Now, it was pretty clear that we didn't have the authority to do that and... Um, some of the teachers responded in that manner and were quite upset with us. Others enjoyed the joke and went along with it. We did collect some money. Um, and then there was my maths teacher who decided with his four-wheel drive he'd go round us and through bushes and show us some dangerous driving to park his car where he wanted. Thank you, Mr. D, if you're listening. But surely um, Christ's authority in these scenarios is very clear. I mean, only God can calm the storm. Psalm 65, verses 5 to 7, uh, the Jews would know this section well about the power of God. You answer us with awesome deeds of righteousness, O God, our Saviour, the hope of all the ends of the earth and the farthest seas, who stilled the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves and the turmoil of the nations. You see, the, the seas know Christ's voice because his was the voice of, with the Father that brought them into being in the beginning, and they still obey it. What kind of man is this? The last incident gives us the answer. What do you want with us, Son of God? Ironically, the demons have the answer. They know who he is. They refer to him rightly as the Son of God. He is their judge. He is the one who will hand out their sentence at the proper time. But you see, I've raced over these well-known stories because this display of authority is not just to tell us who Jesus is. It's designed to bring a response of submission that is wholehearted, that completely changes our priorities. If we acknowledge the power and authority of this one, our whole life will be reoriented towards him. And that is costly. 
And that's what the first part of this passage focuses on, which we've skipped over and we're going to now focus on. The big question I want us to consider today is this. What is the cost of responding to Christ's authority? What is the cost? We need to count the cost, Jesus says. Two answers to that question this morning. The first answer that Jesus gives to this question is it involves putting him above worldly attachments. We're to put Jesus above all worldly attachments. Notice again what Jesus lays down in verses 18 to 20. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now notice in verse 19, a teacher of the law comes up to Jesus. I think you might be thinking, as I do, critically of this man because of his title. Uh, teachers of the law are part of the religious leaders and establishment. We're often critics of Jesus, right? They are the bad guys. But we don't really know anything about this man except that he is described positively as a disciple or follower of Jesus, at least in the broader sense. We know this from verse 21 when the second man is introduced and he's described as another disciple. So all we know about this teacher of the law is that he probably sincerely interested in following Jesus. I think it's fair to assume that he's probably heard some of Jesus' teaching. Maybe he heard the Sermon on the Mount. He might have observed some of his miracles, the ones that happen in this very chapter. And if so, no doubt he was amazed like everyone else at Christ's authority. And so he wants to follow him. He's probably excited as a man because, well, here is someone who can heal, who can clean the unclean leper, who can make the paralyzed man walk. You know, if he follows Jesus, maybe he doesn't face sickness ever again. As a teacher of the law, he's probably excited because here is someone who understands the law far more profoundly than he ever has. And surely as a Jew, he is excited because maybe, just maybe, this man is the promised Messiah, the one whom they're waiting for. And so you'd imagine that he came up to Jesus with great enthusiasm when he said, I'll follow you wherever you go. Now imagine if someone came up to you and said that today. I'd like to follow Jesus. Wouldn't you say, great, sign up here, join us right away. We'd be really excited. But Jesus doesn't do that. No, Jesus says there's a cost to be counted. And so he really throws a bucket of cold water all over this guy. He says, if you follow me, you may not have a home. And to demonstrate that, we find Jesus in the next few verses fast asleep in the back of a boat in the middle of a storm. Uh, following Jesus will mean experiencing hardship. Christ's response to this first disciple is to test his commitment. And it probably reveals what Jesus knew of the man's thinking. He diagnoses a problem here. There's a cost to be counted. In the days of the early church, following Jesus often meant having your property confiscated. Hebrews 10, the people joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property. That's a sentence you need to read slowly, right? Joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property. 
And so Jesus says to this first would-be disciple, hang on a minute, you need to sit down, you need to do the sums. You need to see if you're still prepared to follow me. See how much fuel is in the tank, how much fire is in the belly. Are you a genuine follower? Do you know what it means to say, I'll follow you wherever you go? Which brings us to a second answer to this question. What's the cost of following Jesus? Well, it not only means perhaps giving up house and home, but it involves putting him above family. It involves putting Jesus above family. Notice what Jesus says next, verses 21 and 22. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. That seems like a very harsh word, doesn't it? Fancy Jesus not allowing him to go and bury his father. Is that what he's saying? Well, I think the customs of the day shed some light on what is going on here. Of course, in the decades around the time of Jesus and for centuries, really, uh, the eldest son in particular of a Jewish family, but all of the sons were expected to look after their parents in their old age and to bury them, to uh, deal with any property matters, to make sure that things were sorted for the family. And so there could be one of two scenarios that's going on here for this would-be disciple. Firstly, his father might have recently been deceased and he was asking for time to bury him and mourn his father, discharge any family duties. Possible. But secondly, and more likely, he's waiting for his father to die in a few years, then fulfill all these responsibilities before he will then come and follow Jesus more closely. You see, if, he were, if his father had really died, he'd be at home working through the funeral arrangements right there and then. He wouldn't be standing in front of Jesus asking questions about discipleship. And so he's looking for a period of time, anything from a week, if we're generous, to several years to fulfill his duty towards his father. But Jesus is saying, no, now is the time to follow me. He's saying, let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead when the time comes. You know that you should follow me now, so do it. Well, that's a pretty stunning answer, isn't it? Following Jesus has to come above everything else, every consideration, even family. Now, Jesus is not encouraging disrespect of parents. We know from elsewhere he upholds the commandment to honour your father and mother. And Jesus is not about forbidding his disciples to attend their parents' funerals. What he's doing, because he has perfect knowledge of people's motives and thinking, he's exposing the danger of a qualified discipleship. He's not going to allow excuses the Jews regarded the command to honour your parents as really almost the supreme command, certainly the supreme horizontal command. But Jesus says, following me is to take priority even over that. So that's a tough call even today, right? Certainly in Jewish society in the first century. And I imagine some of you have experienced how difficult that is if you have parents who are not believers. That's a big call. 
Some people are basically disowned by their family when they become a Christian. Maybe you've experienced that. But Jesus wants to say to you through this passage, however great the cost, the call is to follow him. He must come first. Or really someone or something else is Lord of your life. See, the basic point of these verses is simple enough, right? Two disciples come to Jesus promising some kind of allegiance to him. And to an extent, Jesus rebukes them both. But there's a difference between the two, right? The first is too quick in promising. The second is too slow in performing. Because Christ's authority is not just an authority in words or even acts of power. Ultimately, it's an authority that we have to submit to in our daily life if we're going to be a genuine disciple. As one writer has argued, nothing was less aimed at by our Lord than to have followers, unless they were genuine and sound. He is as far from desiring it as it would have been easy to attain. Surely that's a fair summary. I mean, Jesus could have easily attracted a huge following. He did, even by saying these things. But he could have promised, you'll be healthy, wealthy and wise, you know, all your diseases will be healed. I'll provide for all your needs. The effects of sin will be reduced in your life. You can have it all. Just follow me. And surely the whole of Jerusalem would have streamed out and followed him forever. But he doesn't say those things. Rather, when disciples who are keen to follow him come up, throwing themselves before him, he says, foxes have dens, birds have nests. I don't have anywhere. Follow me. Let the dead bury their dead. So it does beg the question at that point, why would anyone bother following Jesus? Maybe this is just all too hard. Well, simply because he is the one who possesses all authority in heaven and on earth. He is the very son of God. And he therefore is one to whom we owe our allegiance not because of what he does or might do for us, but because of who he is. His authority is to be submitted to regardless of the cost that will come. That's what being a disciple is all about. Now, frankly, I don't think we hear enough about Jesus' authority in this sense and the cost of following him because it's uncomfortable, right? We tend to think, I would suggest, of the Christian life, or we'd hope it at least, that it's a bit like a holiday on a tropical island. Our family has just enjoyed the privilege of a week in Fiji at the end of January, and it was everything the brochures might claim and more. The water was amazing. The weather was amazing. Uh, the ocean was like a warm bath. There was a coral reef that surrounded the island that was stunning. We saw amazing coral and fish and turtles and reef sharks straight off the beach. The Fijians were friendly. They encouraged everyone to slow down, just work on Fiji time. <laughs> and I think we're prone to want the Christian life to look like this, right? Follow Jesus and swim through life comfortably. Float around in the pool that is this world and have not a care. We picture the benefits of following Jesus. Our image is all about our comfort and our ease. 
But the Christian life, sadly, is more like the Survivor series. The irony is that the last few seasons of Survivor were filmed on the island that we were on. And the contestants had a very different experience to the one that we enjoyed. Uh, no pools with mocktails being served, uh, no staff waiting on you, no buffets ready to enjoy, just difficult physical tests, hunting for your own food, long hours in the sun, feeling very uncomfortable. We actually walked around to the uninhabited side of the island where Survivor was filmed to see some of the relics left over. We walked for two hours on the beach. We felt like we were on Survivor just walking on the beach. It was so hot. We didn't have anything that we needed to do in terms of a contest. It was taxing. But we're not wanting the Survivor version of following Jesus. I mean, who wants to endure costly experiences that pummel us and push us to our emotional and physical limits like the show Survivor is designed to do for people, where we might even despair of staying the course with Jesus? But friends, this passage is saying that the Christian life, following Jesus, forces you into discomfort where you start finding that you don't have all the skills and resources to make it on your own. And that's actually good for us. The result is spiritual growth and benefits that flow as we trust God prayerfully, seeking his help every step of the way, not to mention the amazing eternal inheritance that we will one day enjoy. The Christian life requires discipline. It requires commitment. It requires a long obedience in the one direction. So I guess I want to conclude by asking you, as I ask myself, what sort of commitment, if any, have you made about following Jesus in this regard? Have you determined to follow Jesus in everything? Or just when it suits you, when it doesn't impinge on your material pursuits in this world, when it doesn't compromise your family concerns? Are you anxious to understand the Bible so that you can conform your mind to God's will? Or do you really want to maintain an independent mind so that you can do things how you want over in this part of your life? And I'll just follow Jesus over here where it seems a bit simpler. It's a question of resolve. With what resolve are you living the Christian life? The Christian life, following Jesus, being his disciple, is serious and it's demanding. If it's not, it's not actually the Christian life that we're living. And it's not Jesus that we're actually following. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we want to acknowledge that Jesus so often in the Gospels has hard and challenging words to say to us, not to be difficult, but because he knows what is best for us, that he is looking for genuine people that will follow him to the finish line. Help us to see the calling that's upon us if we've enjoyed your mercy and grace, if you've brought us to salvation through faith in him. We acknowledge that our performance doesn't save us, 
but you do call us to respond and to live for you, that we might be serious about naming Jesus as our Lord. But Lord, we're weak, so we pray for your help. Help us this week by your Spirit that we might live in a way that acknowledges Jesus, that every decision, every action is driven by him, not by this world, not by our own agenda, but by our Lord. We pray this in his name.